Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And on this week's show, Joan Schaffner and Raj Reddy, both prominent scholars of animal law, will be here to tell us about the Convention on Animal Protection, a new proposed treaty which has been devised as a starting point for dealing with the issues of animal abuse on an international level, and also as a reaction to the revelations that are increasingly coming to light about the connections between animal exploitation and human disease including the pandemic. I'm so glad that we are going there because this is something that I find, you know, so incredibly absent from the discussion about the pandemic. And I sometimes struggle with how to talk about it, to be honest. I mean, I think as they say in the interview, it was because of the obvious connections in the cause of the pandemic that they kind of like you know, started well, not not started this idea, but but it it propelled the idea forward a lot, and yet we do see that that like, no, we're the only people who seem to notice that. Like everything to do with animals, this is a really great effort, and one of the things I have been becoming somewhat more familiar with recently is how much is going on internationally about animals and how different countries are taking different approaches and just how important keeping an eye on what's going on internationally, because we are definitely not in the forefront of how to deal with animals. I mean, in some ways we are, because, you know, well, actually, I, I don't think in any ways we are, but we are wealthier than, than a lot of other countries. So there is more possibility for us to do more. But there's a lot of going on internationally that's pretty exciting. So yeah, this may sound a little dry to people. Don't think it is. It's really, really interesting. Well, also, I just want to say too that Joe, I don't know Raj, so I'm excited to hear this interview, but Joan, I adore. And I am so jealous that you got to do this interview. You know, you used to be involved with the Animal Law Committee as for the tip section of the American Bar Association. You were the chair. Joan was the chair also. And so there was like kind of a closeness between you two at the, that time. And I used to kind of play third wheel and, and go around and like sort of follow both of you around to these conferences. And I just really love Joan's brain. And I'm super excited about the decision. Yeah, no, Joan is amazing. And Z continued that work, unlike me, I bailed. Z's just so good at getting things done institutionally, which is an enormous, enormous talent. Okay, but can I just say you did not bail. You like host the Animal Law Podcast and you do all this work teaching. Well, I just meant I, I bailed on the institutional stuff, which is really not my bag. Uh, I don't feel bad about it. So on the Flock Bonus segment, I'll be continuing that conversation with Joan and Raj. And if you're a Flock member, you'll get the link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this episode goes up. You can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. If you are not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And if you are a Flock member, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern, where we have some very inspiring guests, some recent podcast guests, some truly excellent, intimate conversations about activism and life in general. In fact, we just had one last week, Matt Johnson, who was a recent podcast guest. He, of course, is with DXE. He was our guest. It was so good. He was so inspiring. There are so many wonderful people, new people popping up and seasoned, you know, regulars. We just had someone from, where was that? That someone just came from. We had a new flock member who was zooming in from, why am I blanking on the name? Gibraltar. Gibraltar, thank you. We cover the world. Yeah, I mean, we have we have a number of international guests, but we've never had anybody from Gibraltar before. Right. So if you are a member of the flock, regardless of whether or not you're in Gibraltar, Check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And while you're writing to info at ourhenhouse.org, shoot them an email over there. We all get that email uh, and you'll be able to set up a one-on-one meeting with me if you'd like. It's a Flock perk that we offer because a lot of people just want to chat about their activism and a lot of people want to work within the animal protection movement and they want to talk to me about that too. So I'm happy to just sort of do what I can to help guide you through that. And speaking of which, we don't usually talk about job opportunities here, but two happened to land in my inbox today and they are both phenomenal opportunities. And so I wanted to just take a moment to talk about what they are and 
We will also link to the job postings for them in the show notes for this episode. So one of the jobs, oh, and by the way, I'm on the advisory board for both of these organizations. So one of them is with Sentient Media and they are searching for a managing editor. And this is such a good job. I actually had a moment where I'm like, should I throw my name in the hat? But you know, I, I'm employed <laughs> and like overemployed. So no, I'm not going to, but I have FOMO and I want you, whoever you are listening to this, to apply for this. It's such a great organization. We have interviewed Anna Bradley, the executive director. Sentient Media is a nonprofit journalism organization committed to increasing transparency around the use of animals in our daily lives. And they say, we do so by publishing a wide variety of content focusing on four key pillars, big ag, the environment, justice, and culture. I am in awe of the work they do. And I think that the right person who's listening to this, and you know if you're the right person, should should apply to be the managing editor. So the other job, and this was this is going to come as a bit of a surprise to people who follow animal rights work closely and follow our hen house work closely. It's a truly amazing opportunity. Encompass is seeking an executive director because the founder and current executive director, Ariana Shberti, has decided to step aside in that role and focus on other things. And therefore, they are looking for an executive director. Encompass, of course, is working to make the farmed animal protection movement more effective by fostering racial diversity, equity, and inclusion so that everyone can bring 100% of their brilliance to work for animals. Wonderful opportunity. Both of these opportunities are remote, by the way. And I have to say, like when I was looking at these job opportunities, for these incredible game-changing, change-making organizations, I thought, wow, uh, the movement has definitely matured because back in my day, oh my God, I used to walk barefoot up, <laughs> up the hill in, in the, the snow. snow, in the snow to work for the animals. And I paid them. <laughs> I paid the animals. <laughs> To work. <laughs> so well, anyway, I mean, I'm sorry, but there are actually plenty of people listening to this who actually do pay. I mean, they don't get paid and they probably lose a lot of money helping the animals. So uh, in a lot of ways, it's not that funny. I know it's not funny. I just think that there's something like so revolutionary about like this moment. And I was just very happy. I was having a moment of like appreciation for how far you know, the in, the quote unquote institutional animal protection movement has come. And I say that because that's how Michelle Rojas Soto, who's actually the former managing director at Encompass, that is how she puts it, the institutional animal protection movement. And I really like that way of putting it because some people say like the mainstream animal protection movement. And I think that that's funny. Like, what does that mean? You know, we're not quite no, in the mainstream. No, I hate that. Right. So I like institutional, the like, you know, sort of the big, you know, the quote unquote big organizations that are out there fighting. Yeah. And the the grassroots are not like not part of the mainstream. They're not like a side stream. They're they're a really important part of the movement. Yes. Yes. So check that out. Again, we will link to that. And if you're in the flock and you want to talk to me about these jobs and what they might entail, set up a meeting with me by emailing info at ourheadhouse.org. And like I said, we do all see all of the emails. So what else? Oh, we have a dedication this week that I'm excited about. We don't do these dedications too often, but we do have them. So if you're interested in dedicating an episode to someone you love or someone you hate, whatever. Email info at ourheadnows.org. If you know anybody who hates animals and does bad things to them, you could dedicate an episode just to piss them off. That would be so fun. I would love uh, to read that. Anyway, this week's dedication is coming all the way from Down Under, where Elizabeth and her partner are celebrating their 23rd anniversary this weekend. Thank you once again for choosing to support our hen house to mark the occasion and happy anniversary, Elizabeth and her partner. Happy, happy anniversary. 23 years. That's that's not fooling around. I kind of wish that they were on this because I want to know the secret to that. To 23 years. That's pretty cool. 
All right. Well, we have another announcement. We're like announcement after announcement today, but there's a lot going on. And so, you know, we we did something we don't usually do, but I was sort of smitten by this pitch we got in our email to do a sort of like joint announcement situation with another podcast. And, you know, we don't do it too often, but this one, I was like, absolutely wrapped immediately hearing about this new podcast, which is called Dear Humans. And so I wanted to tell you about it. And wait, wait a second. I think you need to to mention that it's D-E-E-R humans. Yes. Thank you. Dear humans, D-E-E-R. And so they're doing a little announcement for us. We're doing this announcement for them. And I would not have agreed to this if I wasn't like totally intrigued. And I am totally intrigued. And this is the copy that they sent to us that I want to read to you. And then you're going to be intrigued too. Every summer, herds of wealthy vacationers flock to a group of seaside towns on the east end of Long Island, New York, collectively known as the Hamptons. Although it's known for its sprawling beaches, star-studded events, and exorbitantly high-priced real estate, the East End is also home to an ecological conflict that has been decades in the making. White-tailed deer are overpopulated in many parts of the country, and on the East End, the overabundance of these animals has become a major point of contention in the community. The East End's local deer population poses many threats to both human and non-human life. Deer cause lethal car collisions, play a major role in the spread of tick-borne illnesses such as Lyme disease, and contribute to an increasingly alarming sense of ecological imbalance. Some members of the community want to eliminate deer completely, while others are dedicated to protecting them. What has ensued is a local conflict entangled with issues of animal rights, disease epidemics, and wildlife management, ultimately posing the question, who has the right to inhabit land? Dear Humans tells the story of what happens when humans are forced to reckon with a changing environment caused by, well, us. I am so excited to listen to this. And I do want to be clear that we were a little nervous because we haven't listened to it yet. And I don't quite know where it's going to land on the like animal rights spectrum. But my guess is there's going to be multiple perspectives that are sort of portrayed in this podcast and parts of it will piss you off and parts of it will inspire you. And so I'm going to listen and then you should listen and let's discuss you, meaning the person listening to this and you, Marianne, should listen and then we should discuss it because I'm intrigued. That's one rescue I'll never forget. And... There is no other one that could top this. Hi, I'm Eve. I'm from the east end of Long Island, New York. Growing up, there was one wild animal I came across constantly. Deer. Deer are everywhere on the east end. And when I say everywhere, I mean everywhere. In the forests, on the beaches, sometimes even swimming in the water. But for every healthy living deer I come across, there are two dead ones, lying lifeless on the side of the road. Deer become roadkill as frequently as squirrels do. Deer crossing signs are as ubiquitous as stop signs. And as I got older, I began to notice it more and more and more. This is a podcast about deer and people, and how in one unique community, these two species are bound in a web of conflict that has been decades in the making. Over the course of this series, I'm going to be digging into the issue of deer overpopulation and the ensuing conflict in my hometown. We're going to learn about some of the reasons people dislike deer, including their role in the spread of tick-borne illnesses, the threats they pose to human safety, and the part they play in environmental destruction. We're also going to find out what people in the community are doing to solve these issues, from hunters who are trying to take the population down to wildlife rescuers who dedicate their life's work to saving these animals. The more I dug into it, the more I realized how these same stories were playing out all across the country. In a very real sense, deer-human interactions are a microcosm of the many challenges our society faces in dealing with the natural world. So yes, this is a story about deer, 
But it's also a story about people. It's about the environment and our relationship to it. It's about land and who has the right to inhabit space. It's about disease epidemics. And ultimately, it's about conflict. Why we take sides, how opinions get politicized, and what we can learn by listening to one another. I'm Eve Bishop, and this is Dear Humans. Everybody's screaming for a solution, but nobody's even trying. I know many people with PhDs who would gladly stand up and argue with me about the role of deer in the transmission of Lyme disease. And that's fine, I'll argue with them, but we're not gonna get very far. We need to hire people, we need to study this. This is an epidemic. We know that hunting works. Over all these years and all the things they've tried, hunting works. These folks created the problem. Animal rights activists, obviously they're very passionate, just as we're very passionate. Nothing would stop me from helping an animal that's injured. Tell me you shot a deer so you could have his head hanging on your wall? I have no time for you. I have no respect for you. Everybody has their opinion about how it should be dealt with. It makes me want to cry. It's like, how do we undo this? Things are still the same and we don't talk about it as much anymore. I wonder why. Because nobody listened. I think people are starting to come around and realize that they have to do something to help out this situation. In all honesty, if people are trying to do this, you gotta do anything and everything you can to win this battle. You can listen to the show wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, visit evebishop.net. I'm really intrigued too. And it just really ties into something I've been thinking of a lot recently of almost how rich people, and actually not just rich people, their occupation of land really, really amounts to a new kind of colonialism that that rich people and their resorts and even other kinds of travel or vacationing take over lands that, I mean, that have belonged to Native Americans, that have belonged to animals. And I mean, I'm increasingly just seeing how completely tied in it all is to colonialism and how it should be analyzed like that. And then, of course, it leads to all these problems because the rich people want it all to themselves. And like I said, I'm not just talking about really rich people. I'm kind of talking you know, maybe about all of us in some ways, that vacation lands, all of the resorts and all of the places that people go for, quote unquote, vacations, have become kind of enclaves in the most beautiful places in the world. And have they've been taken over for white people from wealthy countries. Uh, I mean, and this obviously isn't an international issue, but they've been taken over by certain groups of people, the the best places in the world. And all of a sudden they don't belong to the native inhabitants, whether those were human uh, native inhabitants and, and of course, animal native inhabitants. I'm so glad you put it that way. Thank you. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I'm really excited about hearing this and we'll, the conversation will continue. And speaking of the conversation, let's get to today's conversation with you on our head house. Joan Schaffner is an associate professor of law at the George Washington University Law School, as well as the author of the book, Introduction to Animals and the Law, the co-author and editor of A Lawyer's Guide to Dangerous Dog Issues, and of Litigating Animal Law Disputes, A Complete Guide for Lawyers, and author of numerous articles and chapters on animals and the law. Z is also co-chair of the American Bar Association International Animal Law Committee, past chair of the ABA Tort Trial and Insurance Practice Section Animal Law Committee, founding chair of the American Association of Law Schools Section on Animal Law, and a fellow of the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics. In other words, very smart. Very smart. And like, just as he does so much, I mean, it's just unbelievable, like, like that list. And that was cutting out a good deal of the biography. It's crazy. Totally. Yeah, you have a hard job cutting down the bios sometimes. I'm glad it's you and not me. Raj Reddy is a founding member of Lawyers for the Convention on Animal Protection and directs the Global Animal Law and Animal Law Advanced Degree Programs at the Center for Animal Law Studies at Lewis and Clark Law School, 
where he teaches international animal law, animal legal philosophy, and emerging topics in animal law, among other courses. He also chairs the International Subcommittee of the Animal Law Section of the American Bar Association and serves as a board member of Minding Animals International. They will be joining Marianne right after this. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Welcome to our hen house, Joan and Raj. Marianne, thank you so much for having us. I'm really excited to be here. I'm thrilled to have you. I I wasn't really very aware of this project, and it's a very exciting one. And I'd like to kind of start at the beginning because I'm not sure I have this totally straight. I understand that this all started at the American Bar Association with a project there. And I think that was pre-pandemic, if I've got it right. And is that right? And can can you just give us a little bit of that background? Sure. As you know, I'm, I'm very involved with the American Bar Association. It happens to be one of the largest voluntary professional organizations in the world. Um, and there are two, actually, animal law committees in the ABA. There's the Animal Law Committee in the Tort Trial and Insurance Practice Section and the International Animal Law Committee in the International Section. This project actually grew out of uh, a program that both of the animal, committees, uh, animal law committees hosted featuring David Favor back in March 2020. Now, he presented uh, on his proposal for an international convention on the protection of animals to the two committees. And of course, March 2020, the timing of that presentation was fortuitous, right? That was when basically, you know, the whole pandemic lockdown began here in the U.S. I mean, immediately after that presentation was when everything fell apart. So that was the month that we really began to think about using the American Bar Association and the policy of the House of Delegates uh, as a means of trying to help persuade nation states and policymakers that uh, an international convention for the protection of animals is really important. Yes. It's just so fortuitous that you had started talking yes. about <laughs> the protection of animals and then this, in- this enormously important reason, human-centric reason to do so arrived. You'd already thought through a lot of the issues. Yes. Well, David uh, Favor... Um, He first drafted a treaty back in the 1980s, and he since then had written a law review article and had been thinking about the the concept of international treaty for many, many years. And what was so wonderful, right, is the main problem that we've been having is trying to get states to take this seriously. But once we recognized, right, um, that the pandemic was actually partly, if not almost exclusively, related to humans' um, treatment of animals that, and having a a, a treaty that would protect animals would actually help prevent a future pandemic, much like COVID-19. So it gave us sort of the hook that we had been looking for as a means of trying to to get nation states to take this issue seriously. So it's a group of lawyers and they, they started on this current effort, but the goal is to have something very international, put it into place. It's called the Convention on Animal Protection for Public Health. Can you just kind of, this is a hard thing to do, but can you kind of tell us what it is in a nutshell? And then we can go back and get into some more of the detail, just so people know what we're talking about as we move forward. Let me start with just saying what the resolution of the American Bar Association adopted. And then I'll let Raj maybe in a very quick nutshell sort of explain what CAP actually is. The When we brought the resolution to the ABA House of Delegates, what all it what it asked was that it endorse the One Health approach and urge all nations to negotiate an international convention for the animals to protect public health, the environment, and animal well-being. And it encouraged the U.S. State Department actually to initiate and take a leadership role in those negotiations. Now, to be clear, not, no specific provisions of the treaty were endorsed by the ABA. It was merely endorsing that 
states actually negotiate such a treaty. So, so it's just a, a concept at that point. A concept, right. So then our group turned to actually drafting the Convention on Animal Protection. And, and Raj, did you want to just briefly mention that or sort of summarize what the cap is? Sure. And maybe I'll take a, a, a quick step back. So the ABA sort of embraced the resolution calling for, you know, this this animal protection convention. And this was actually in March of 2021. And um, at that time, the director general of the WHO, the World Health Organization, along with 25 heads of states, issued what was really just this clarion call for an international treaty on pandemic preparedness and response. And, you know, while we've discussed you know, perspective next steps that our group would group would take after the ABA voted in favor of our resolution. We can't quite hadn't sort of formulated what those steps would be. And so here were world leaders of, you know, the global organization for disease control and dozens of prime ministers and presidents from Rwanda to Romania, Korea to Chile, Spain, Fiji, Thailand, South Africa, Trinidad, and Tobago. I mean, just a representative group of our elected leaders were speaking in more or less a single voice, issuing a collective alarm, and really sort of attesting to the inherent interconnectedness of our lives and this need for, again, sort of this treaty on international pandemic preparedness and response. And, um, you know, to be sure, Joan and I and the rest of our working group appreciated that that's, again, fortuitous and timely recognition that only a globally agreed upon framework could address the crisis before us. Yet the emphasis seemed to be primarily, if not exclusively, focused on preparing for and responding to pandemics, which, you know, to take a step back, that those are critically important goals. But it seemed more or less short-sighted in the, in the sense that we actually have the power to significantly mitigate the risk of outbreaks in the first place. So that is, you know, not just preparing for and responding to them, but actually preventing the spread of zoonotic disease outbreaks. And so if we were going to go to these world leaders with that message, it was critical that we had sort of a basic framework in hand, sort of a starting point for treaty negotiations. So as you're pointing out, like I, I, it just freaks me out. And it just seems like everything that's happened during this pandemic has been exactly the same as the kind of theme that you're pointing out that there's, you know, the world <laughs> came to a halt, crisis of monumental proportions. There was, a, we kind of knew where it came from. We know where pandemics come from and nobody still is talking about that there people still don't know this that we get these diseases from animals it, it it boggles the mind so that was among your goals to bring attention to the fact that we can not only make agreements among nations to prepare to deal with it but we could actually make agreements among nations to prevent it but it has we have to start thinking about animals can we just take a moment because one of the things that has happened is that in the beginning, we knew where it came from. It came from this live market in Wuhan, China. And then it all got very confusing about where it actually came from. Can you just, can we just start a little bit uh, with talking about what we actually do know about where it came from? And also then talk a little bit about where, where pandemics could come from. Well, you know, this isn't the first time that this has happened. And I know that there's been quite a bit of debate as to where um, SARS-CoV-2 originated? Was it out of, was it manufactured in a lab or was it coming out of one of these Wuhan live markets? And the great weight of, weight of evidence today points to these live animal markets. And this isn't even the first time that something like this has happened. We've had similar outbreaks emerging from the same part of the world out of these, you know, live animal markets with SARS in 2002 being just one of many examples. You know, and that's just in the live animal context, but there are others in other contexts, including HIV AIDS resulting from wildlife consumption in Africa, Marburg virus from laboratory research in Germany, Nipah virus, you know, that came from this expansion in pig farming in Malaysia. And those are just, you know, a few, but the vast majority of diseases that affect us, something on the order of 70%, um, are zoonotic in nature, meaning that they cross that species barrier from non-human animals to human animals. And so, again, the great weight of evidence just points to this having originated in one of these live animal, live animal markets. And just to you know, touch upon some of the the treatment of animals in in these in these contexts, 
SARS-CoV-2 likely originated in bats as a reservoir or host species, and then either directly spilled into humans through habitat encroachment, if not destruction, or through an intermediary species that was living or being commodified in one of these markets. The the evidence points to sort of a palm civet or um, another sort of mammal. But these markets have been called cauldrons of contagion, given the often sort of cramped and close proximity of these different species. Many of these animals stacked, you know, three or four high in cages. They're dying of thirst. They're dying of starvation. They have open wounds. And they're in these states of, you know, not just physical, but also mental suffering that, you know, further distresses them and compromises their already weakened immune systems. And I don't know if you've seen or if your listeners have seen the film Contagion, but that film showed us this exact scenario. The the director and the, the writer for the film basically were asking scientists, where's the next one coming? And they all said, live animal market somewhere in Asia. And we've seen it yeah, play out. It, it's totally crazy. And and I want to hear specifically what the treaty would have would have to do with live animal markets. But before we talk about that, let's just talk like there are also other so I mean, as you just pointed out, other sources of possible pandemics. And and obviously the one that you know I'm the most focused on, and a lot of people listening are probably the most focused on is factory farms. And I think that the 1918 flu epidemic is is widely seen to have come from from American farming of uh, ba- way back when. I mean, they weren't factory farms exactly then, but all right. So is anybody else other than us, so the people who are listening to this podcast, talking about the fact that factory farms are also need to be a focus of this, but is all, or is all the focus on live animal markets, which after all are not really a Western problem. They're, you know, they're somewhere else and, you know, it's pretty easy to be against them. That's a great question, and it's, I think, critical for us to appreciate, regardless of where they are, what this pandemic and other pandemics have shown us is that you cannot just close your border to these diseases. They are not things you can keep out of your country. And again, sort of attesting to the need to create sort of a global standard for animal protection, regardless of whether it applies to animals in factory farming conditions or animals in live market conditions, the diseases that emerge out of both of those um, both of those animal uses affect us all. Um, again, they don't just stay within the country in which they originate. And, and factory farms is there? Has there been a, a focus on the origin of them in, in factory farms, which could be in virtually any country because every country has factory farms? I was going to say I do believe that certain peoples have focused on the emergence of particularly the antibiotic use to the, the, the use of antibiotics within factory farming as a huge sort of public health uh, problem as well, right? I will say that with respect to our treaty, for example, one of the, one of the issues that we have been focusing on is the need to, to draft a treaty that will be socially and politically palatable to most of the nation states worldwide. We don't wish to have it be a completely sort of Western type of perspective, right, that that focuses only on sort of non-U.S. issues and recognizing that, you know, big ag is, of course, a big U.S. point in terms of potentially creating um, difficulties for getting a treaty if we directly target factory farming, for example. But the treaty does deal with uh, and provides certain minimum protections for animals used in every potential in yeah. every potential use, whether it be in research and testing, companion animals, commercial animals, captive wildlife, and the like. So we do attempt in the umbrella treaty with the expectation that once the umbrella treaty is negotiated and people sign the states sign on to that, then there will be an opportunity for states who have a particular interest to dive deeply down into, but through protocols. Uh, provide much greater both protections for animals and protections to prevent, you know, additional uh, pandemics through specific protocols targeting very specific uses of of animals. Yeah, I would. I really would like to get into that because it is interesting how the treaty works structurally. That there is kind of this overall set of principles, as I understand, and then different countries can negotiate their or, or decide on their own protocols. And if I understand it. Some of these standards, within even within the treaty, are more specific than others, which isn't surprising given the different political uh, ramifications of 
like, you know, you, you can suggest that people treat companion animals pretty well without being too controversial, but uh, farm animals, it's a different story. So how specific are the proposals at this juncture? And, and how do you expect them to play out in various places? And what, what particular classifications of animals does the treaty deal with? Sure. And um, yeah, happy to to dive in um, to sort of the, the CAP framework. And so the umbrella framework of the CAP is really pandemics focused, as Joan mentioned. And so um, it works, I, I think about that part of the, the treaty in two sort of ways. One, so by ratifying the CAP, states are obligated to create sort of this government authority whose job it is to determine what species um, exist in their jurisdiction and which species um, are natural reservoirs of or hosts to some of these known viruses and other pathogens, um, as well as to identify their location. And, you know, by assessing what other species may serve as um, intermediary species for these viruses and other pathogens, these authorities have to ensure that activities like hunting and proposals for development that would affect those habitats don't force these species to come into close contact with other species. So this might come in the form of, say, a hunting ban or a more robust permitting system, for example, if one wanted to create, let's just say, an agricultural facility adjacent to a forest or clear-cut part of a forest to make one. And so if the viruses in question and the species who host them can directly affect humans, then this might require states to ban human encroachment into some of those wild spaces. So that's really sort of the the wildlife, um, the free roaming wildlife aspect of the of the treaty. But you know, more broadly, CAP also seeks to afford these animals just some basic welfare considerations, such as veterinary care for animals used in entertainment, ensuring that different species aren't intermixing in artificial environments, but rather are kept separate. And so that might um, play out in animals in transport or uh, live animal markets. And it ensures that research institutions share with the public um, what species are being housed within those facilities and for what purposes. And it ensures that animals who are under human control in specific contexts are given sufficient food and water, shelter from the environment, opportunities for exercise and mental stimulation. Again, just these bare minimums to, yes, attend to their well-being, you know, which is important for its own sake, but in doing so to to see to it that they're not being held captive in these conditions that would lead to these immunocompromised states and, again, make them vectors for these diseases that, that affect themselves, but also us. So if a country signed on to this treaty... Like, let's say it's a a country where there is horrific animal exploitation, which is pretty easy to imagine since there's horrific animal exploitation in every country. Um, (laughs) What would they need to do? Like, what are they promising if they signed into it, onto it as it is now? Well, the the CAP has a series of articles that, that identify and outline what those obligations would be. And again, in the sort of the wildlife context, they would have to create these, these government authorities to regulate human interaction with wildlife. Um, So again, hopefully making sure that we aren't A, encroaching upon, and then B, destroying that habitat, which is all the more critical consideration given anthropogenic climate change and changing migration patterns and things of that nature. But also with respect to animals who are in our care and control, making sure that they have appropriate food, species-specific food, water, shelter, uh, making sure that they have mental stimulation, that they have opportunity for exercise. And so that would affect um, or near to the benefit of animals in different sort of categorical uses, companion animals, um, animals used in entertainment, animals in transport, commercial animals um, as well. And the the stipulations are slightly different, and um, listeners should go to our website and look at the cap if they want to see some of the specifics. But in general, it's seeing what is specific to each one of those categories that would, A, you know, work to the benefit of their, their well-being and their welfare, but also in the context of disease prevention. And as Joan mentioned, the CAP contemplates these additional protocols. And so right now we have something like 40-something countries who have banned the sale of cosmetics used on animals. And that could be, you know, it's it's already actually accounted for in the CAP, but something like that could be added to the convention as as a protocol. 
there's at least two specific provisions of CAP that, um, well, one that Raj just alluded to with respect to uh, cosmetic testing. Um, and then I'll also answer your protocol question, but I guess I'll, I'll answer your protocol question first. Yeah, the umbrella treaty is designed to basically, everyone has to, all, all nation states who want to be involved in this treaty have to sign on to the umbrella treaty and to meet the minimum, and they are they are minimum standards uh, of animal welfare and well-being in these various areas, whether it be wildlife uh, management, captive wildlife, animals used in research and testing, animals used in entertainment, companion animals, and commercial animals. In a, once that treaty is negotiated and states sign on to it, then the next step would be for states who are interested to come together and draft protocols typically designed around one of these, one of these types of, of animal communities and provide for even greater protection for the well-being of those animals and further protect uh, the spread of zoonotic diseases and the like. But the idea would be that the states would come together that would be interested in those protocols, but every state that signs on to the umbrella treaty need not sign on to any of the individual protocols. Now, and turning to, you know, we do have many, you know, Raj did discuss most of the primary provisions that, that really govern virtually all animals, particularly those within our care. But there's two provisions that I think are probably, in my mind, the most progressive that deal with two very specific issues, both of which I think have become that we think we can be more progressive on because from a social and a legal standpoint, I think there's been a lot more progress made in these two areas. One is that fur farming is prohibited under the Umbrella Treaty. And of course, if you can fit from me, what are you going to do? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so we figured at least we can put that in, right? Um, but that's sort of a bright line rule, right? Prohibited. Fur farming is prohibited. The other, which, which Roger was alluding to, is to literally prohibit the import, export, purchase, sale, or advertisement of any cosmetic pro product if that product or any component of it was developed using animal testing. Again, this has been something that a lot of nations, maybe not the U.S. as much, although we're certainly working towards that, have really taken a stand against that. So literally any, any state who would sign on to even the umbrella treaty would be bound to, to meet those two requirements, for example, if you see what I'm saying. Yeah. Right. Also, we have to, because we're looking at this internationally and we're creating a floor, the floor is necessarily going to be lower than what is seen in some of these higher farmed animal welfare states. And that's, again, to get states to to sign on. But one of the things that we see is that in this era of multinational corporations, if state A raises its farmed animal protections to this particular, some higher level, then that particular industry is going to be incentivized to go to state B where the farmed animal welfare protections are much lower or non-existent as we see in a number of countries. And again, what the CAP sort of sees as politically palatable is having even just that lowest threshold that doesn't disincentivize states from going above and beyond and perhaps turning to trade measures to prevent the import of lower animal welfare products into those countries. But again, it does sort of bring sort of farmed animal welfare considerations into the international sort of discourse. And that's a critically important step and one that hasn't been taken in a proper treaty context yet. So yeah, I think Joan and I and everyone in our working group are completely in agreement with you that the floor is very low, but in terms of the practical realities that these are the reasons why. Yeah, no, I, I fully understand that. And I, I do think the fact that just bringing attention to it, I mean, what else are we going to do? <laughs> like, like, how else can you proceed? It's, it, if you're going to proceed on a legal basis and trying to get countries to sign on, how, how else would you proceed? So proceeding... As long as we all do it with eyes wide open about what's really going on, I think is important. You also, I mean, and this is something that I, I think you said in maybe in your article, because you wrote a great article about this project, that negotiations for such a convention should only proceed if there is some level of belief that the results of the negotiations will not simply make present animal welfare treatment the global standard. I mean, clearly the same kind of concern. How do you avoid that? How do you bring enough attention to what's really going on to 
And what would make you think, since you said that, uh-oh, something, you know, maybe negotiation shouldn't proceed here because there are people who are just going to use this for cover and nothing's going to get better. How do you avoid that risk? Well, I think what we've tried to do, one, one of the issues too that we have is we have a draft here. And once the draft goes, it starts being negotiated from state to state, right, or among the states, literally this language can be amended by anybody and anyone in the entire process, right? And I <laughs> yeah. think it's it's it would be ludicrous for us to believe that we would have a whole lot of control over that process once the negotiation begins. I mean, we certainly would love to be able to stay or envision that we would stay involved and that we wouldn't allow the treaty to, you know, to become basically, as you said, sort of co-opted by big industry <laughs> that would, you know, exactly how we would do that, I'm not exactly sure. But that is that is the at least the anticipation. But the, the problem is, of course, there is very little control over that negotiation process once it begins among the states. So I don't I don't know that I have exactly an answer to your question, but that would be, I think, what we believe is overall we'll be better off with something than than nothing at this point. And and Raj, I'll let you perhaps have add to that. Yeah. I think we have corollaries in other contexts too. I mean, are we better without sort of the Paris and the Kyoto, you know, pro- treaties? And of course, those got watered down as well. And we were we wouldn't be surprised, and we're expecting that you know what we presented here is going to be watered down as well in, t- in terms of sort of the the animal welfare considerations that are contemplated. But when we got together and once the ABA had sort of embraced that particular resolution and the World Health Director General pronounced this call for a pandemic treaty, we saw this opportunity to to bring it into sort of the global discourse. And, you know, without us doing this, without us bringing it to um, world leaders as a pandemic prevention treaty, it wouldn't it wouldn't even be a ping on their radars and again the question is would we rather not have it or rather have it and clearly the the answer is the latter and not just for the 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 argument that animal protection is important for pandemic prevention but it's critically important for conservation and for habitat preservation and the like. And so what we're hoping and what we're encouraging states to do when they look at the treaty is, yes, it's a pandemic prevention treaty, at least in sort of the umbrella context, but it serves all of these other sort of critical ecosystem and habitat preservation services or purposes. And it's part of this larger conversation that we need to have about climate change and biodiversity preservation. And it just fits into this larger puzzle of not just how can we help protect animals, but how can we ensure our own survival? And so we're we're hoping that this becomes sort of a, a critically important part of that larger conversation. Yeah, I mean, and I don't mean to sound like I I know I was asking you some of the tough questions, but like if you're not talking about it, you're not going to get anywhere. And law is, you know, as we all know, law is not a perfect enterprise. So talking about it is hugely, hugely important. And it, it is so, as I said right at the beginning of the interview, deeply shocking to me how few people are talking about the animal connection with this pandemic and with you know, the pandemics to come. Can I offer an example of something that I don't know if it's going to be, if the cap is going to follow sort of the same trajectory, but, you know, if we look at the International Convention for the Regulation of Whaling, you know, created in 1947-48, created specifically and exclusively to ensure that we didn't hunt whales into extinction for the primary exclusive purpose of ensuring that we could hunt them into perpetuity. And since the 1970s, um, this greater sort of awareness of how whales serve all of these vital ecosystem preservation purposes, states have joined onto the International Convention for the Regulation of Whaling. They sit on the International Whaling Commission, not for the purpose of engaging in the hunting of whales, but to produced this global moratorium on whaling, which was supposed to be 10 years, but is now still ongoing. And the global, you know, the global moratorium exists today. And the entire context for getting into it is no longer part of the conversation. It's about 
let's stop the hunting of whales and let's ensure that these whales can be doing this, these vital ecosystem services. Again, even if we don't care about whales themselves, and most of us do, but even if we don't, we care that they're doing these vital ecosystem services that are allow, that's allowing us to continue as a species. That is a great example. And also the article that you wrote, that it, I think it's forthcoming, it still hasn't been published yet, in Correct. Global Journal for Animal Law, like really points to the fact that that things that have helped animals weren't negotiated to help animals. <laughs> for the for, They were negotiated to protect uh, human enterprise. But still, yeah, so I think that's a great point and, and a real uh, argument in favor of, of why this treaty is important. Can you also t- uh, tell people how they can find that article once it is published. And also you have a, a a video, a great little video that you wanted to talk about. So can you tell us about that? Yeah. In fact, um, it's about a two minute video and it highlights um, all of these issues we've just discussed with respect to CAP. It was submitted as a competition that is being hosted by the European Food Safety Authority which is a European governmental agency working with other European agencies, including the European Center for Disease Prevention and Control and the European Environmental Agency, that they're hosting a scientific conference on the interconnectedness between human health, animal health and welfare, and the environment and our society. And so what we've done is this video contest is there's some 30 or some videos that are being that, that are available for viewing. And if you view ours and like that video, that will give us an opportunity to be sort of a lead group or team at that conference to to bring greater awareness of these issues that we've been talking about today in CAP. So one thing that we would really love for your viewers to do is go see this the two minute video. We think it's it's actually kind of a fun video and to like it, if it, at least in fact, if you do like it, because that will help us uh, present even these if, issues even if you at don't this conference. Like it. <laughs> like it. <laughs> like it. <laughs> and let me add, I know this is coming out, you know, the contest yes. runs from February 1st to February 28th, and this will come out, I think, after that. But, That's true. you know, go ahead and still please watch the video. It's it's wonderfully produced and um, is so compelling. And and the article? If, if you Google around, the Global Journal of Animal Law is an, an online uh Open access journal that an open access, yeah, open access online journal that that will be published. I'm not exactly sure of the timing because literally it was just we just submitted it February 1st, but I do expect it will be a couple of months and hopefully it will be should be able to be found in that journal. It's a special issue focusing on international law protections for animals in a variety of different contexts. So there'll be a variety of, of really some great articles focusing on these issues from a variety of different perspectives. There's also an upcoming talk at Yale. Is that going to be online? Do you know? Yes, it'll be a virtual virtual webinar hosted um, by Yale. And um, we have a couple of other talks we're giving. One is going to be at Monmouth University. Um, that will be actually before um, this goes live. But a number of other talks are, are in the works. Um, Joan and Dana Bray and I will be giving a talk um, to the Global uh, Research Network sometime in early f- April as well. So your listeners should definitely sort of follow us um, on Facebook or or Instagram or LinkedIn, and you know they'll be apprised of all of these places where they can learn more about the CAP, engage with us, and if folks are interested in sort of supporting the CAP as well, one of the things that they can do is reach out to um, you know environmental, public health, and animal protection organizations in their their state or our, our country. And you know, really push for them to push for legislators to take this take this up and take it seriously and engage in some of this public discourse with other legislators in other countries. And that's some of the work that we're doing behind the scenes in order to sort of get the cap off of the ground. Great. There's really a lot that people can do, and it sounds like you know, it's like you create another reason to creating something like this. It's it, it's a framework for people to work with, and and it, instead of just feeling awful about things. Uh, the website is conventionanimalprotection.org and and uh, we'll be looking forward to hear what happens. Uh, so thanks so much for telling us about it today on our Hen House. Thank you so much for having us. It's been fun. Yeah, thank you so much for having us, Marianne. 
If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxiety surprising. Our first story is actually a good story. It's from Utah, and it's actually a report on last week's Rising Anxieties, where I spoke about a bill that had been introduced in Utah which was similar to the Federal Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act. And, and it would have made it impossible for any municipalities in Utah to have any regulations about pretty much any kind of animal enterprise, extremely broad. And, and there were actual protests. And apparently, you know, Utah, particularly since Best Friends is there, has made a lot of progress on local ordinances regarding uh, regarding companion animals. And so people were pretty pissed off and, and it got dropped. Even though it had been fast-tracked, it had passed one of the, I don't know whether it was the Senate or the House that it had passed, but it had passed. One of them had been sent off to the other one. And and yet it was, they, they actually <laughs> caved. It was ridiculously broad. It is Basically, what becomes pretty clear here is that what they really wanted to do is just ban municipalities from banning factory farms. And they wrote it really, really, really broad. So they're probably going to come back with something narrower, and we'll see whether there will be the same number of protests. But for the moment, victory. So let's enjoy it. All right. From MeetingPlace.com, the Legally Speaking column by Sean Stevens, Nobody Looks Good in Orange. All right. This I, I, I don't want to get legal technical here, but so I will try to avoid that. He starts off by saying, this is his subject. Can a food company executive be sentenced to a year or more in prison if the company he or she works for unknowingly sells contaminated food? The stark answer is yes. You know, maybe that sounds unreasonable to some people. Um, in the first place, the company can never know. It depends on whether this individual person knows you know, people can like avoid knowing things. It's up to them to be careful and to look. If you don't look, you'll never know. So maybe this the answer isn't so stark. Of course, they should be uh, liable and they should be eligible to go to prison. They're, we're talking about selling contaminated food. But, you know, he's pretty horrified at this. He does admit this has been the law for a long time. He's just worried about the enforcement being enhance, partially because of the science. So as he points out, instead of bringing felony charges against the company or its executives, DOJ, so this is a federal law, can instead bring a strict liability misdemeanor charge, which does not require DOJ to establish the elements of knowledge or intent. Now, that only makes sense in this. How could DOJ ever manage to establish knowledge or intent? They, you know, like that's not within their purview. If somebody wants to come back and prove that they, they, they didn't, uh, it wasn't their fault. That's one thing, but they're supposed to be paying attention. They're supposed to be making sure this doesn't happen. He goes on to say, all DOJ is required to establish is that a company executive or high level food safety professional, one, was aware of a circumstance that could lead to food product contamination. Okay. Two, was in a position to eliminate the condition. And three, failed to do so. Well, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, yeah, send them to prison. Like food poisoning can kill people. Oh, and what he's really worried about, you know, like I said, this has been the law for a while, but it, th this whole genome sequency, they can find out that a strain of listeria that was found in the facility is actually the same strain of listeria that actually poisons people later. So they can track it. And then they will actually know that these, these food safety professionals fail to eliminate the condition because it will, it, this is the real, real concern that they have is that they can now link food poisoning outbreaks to particular facilities. I'm calling them facilities, but we all know they're slaughterhouses. And 
now people can find them if they let food poisoning through. That's what they're really worried about. He's really worried. I couldn't be more pleased. It like sounds completely reasonable when you talk about it. All right. Also from meetingplace.com, the court of claims. This is a column by Tom Johnston, who writes the writer's block column. And he's worried about, about, this is like the most, <laughs> this one is really hilarious. He's worried about tracking greenhouse gas emissions. And what he's really worried about, like, you know, as he points out, over the years, we've seen a wide range of numerical percentages used to assign the amount of greenhouse gas emissions the animal agriculture industry contributes on a global scale. Well, I agree with you, Tom. I mean, the range is pretty insane, including the industry's range, which is, you know, close to zero. But, you know, like pinning down these numbers and reporting them accurately depends a lot on how much information you have and also on what you choose to count. But what he's upset about, it's that it's certain that processors, processors, that's what they call themselves now, I guess, are making concerted efforts and setting ambitious goals to reduce and or neutralize their carbon footprints. You know, I'm not that certain about that. And he's talking about one of the companies talking about is Danish Crown, which is the huge, huge Danish pork company. You don't think of Denmark being the center of the pork industry, but you know, it really is. Recently, Danish Crown, quote, withdrew its climate-controlled pig phrasing on its label under pressure from retailers and environmental activists. You know, I think this pressure, I think, from what he says later, that it involved a lawsuit. <laughs> so they probably had to withdrew this climate-controlled pig phrasing. According to the Danish Crown spokeswoman, we think it's a shame. I bet you do. Because climate-controlled pigs were a way of communicating that the farmers who supply pigs to us are actively working to lower their COT footprint. Well, honey, that's just not good enough. You know, that like that you can communicate that somebody's actively working. Like, like, let's give us numbers. And the numbers are never going to be any good because raising animals for food, aside from producing enormous amounts of suffering, produces enormous amounts of global greenhouse gases. But, you know, Tom's all worried about this because he does agree that, you know, if like, they can get certification, they can tell consumers and may, there may be consumers who are willing to pay the premium for such a product. But, quote, growth beyond niche will be an uphill battle. This is the, this is the key sentence. As long as those controlling the narrative, that would be us, on sustainability effectively prohibit its association with animal agriculture. So it's really like his point here is that animal advocacy and environmental advocacy groups that point out that animal agriculture spews greenhouse gases into the environment are the cause of, of animal agriculture not being able to reduce those greenhouse gases. <laughs> it's just so stupid. <laughs> Because we own, apparently we own the narrative. Oh, my God. These people. These people. All right. Misleading new study claims eating meat helps you live longer. The reason this headline calls this misleading is because this particular article is from our friends over at Plant Based News. Uh, should vegans be worried? Uh, let's take a closer look at the newly published studies. And thank you very, very much to Plant-Based News for doing this. This article is by Dr. Justine Butler, who works for Viva. Apparently, the Daily Mail headline said, Sorry, vegans. Australian study finds eating meat correlates to a longer life expectancy. All right, so I'm going to tell you how she points out they did this study. It's a huge study, 175 countries. Oh, my, that must be right. And based on data from the Food and Agricultural Organization, apparently they didn't do their own data, they definitely found that countries with a greater meat intake have a greater life expectancy. And then they decided that those two things were related. So, so as this, the FAO's most recent data, as, as Justine points out, lists the top five meat consumers as Hong Kong, the U.S., Australia, Argentina, and Spain. The bottom five were Ethiopia, India, Bangladesh, Democratic Republic of the Congo, and Burundi. And they are saying that the difference in life expectancy between these two types of groups of countries are totally have to do with how much meat they're, they're consuming. 
apparently they don't take into account at all the differences in income in these countries, the differences in infrastructure in these countries, the differences in healthcare in these countries, education, income, access to clean water. So like only the fact that rich countries these rich countries eat more meat and that must be why their why their life expectancy is is longer. Are you kidding me? Oh my god. Oh, you know, poverty kills. Unbelievable. And that's it for this week's rising anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, we invite you to join the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at ourhenhouse. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast. And to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Vicki Bichler for her membership and administrative help. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in. Listener.